This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a brand new week here on the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio show whose purpose is simply to answer your Bible questions, your life questions, anything and everything that's going on. Uh, If you call us, we'll do the best that we can to provide the answers. Our phone numbers are 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically at 630-5757. You can also email questions by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. And just hit one button, call now, and it'll connect you directly to our studio producer. We'd love to have your calls. Hope you had a great day in church yesterday. We did here. Yesterday was a little bit uh, different for us. We had not only the regular service, uh, three services in the morning, but we uh, we had our annual business meeting last night. And I wouldn't say anything about it, but I just feel like the Lord wants me to, to talk to you a little bit about it. Um, um, the annual business meeting, it's the last February, uh, last Sunday in February every year, and we go over the previous year's um, finances, um, people that are interested, and we don't have huge crowds for this, of course, a little more interest uh, yesterday than in previous years, but the idea is we want to be transparent with the money that people give. Uh, so uh, we we sort of open the books, uh, anything and everything that they have questions about, we'll answer. Um, and when I say we, we share everything, it's it's how much money went to payroll, how much money went to rent, how much money went to, to um, uh, this account or that account. Uh, and, and I even go into uh, the amount of money that, that um, I, I take. So uh, we just want people to know that the money that they're, giving to the church in good faith is being used um, uh, in a way that honors the Lord. And uh, I was a little bit um, uh, heartened to see the the interest in the people last night. Uh, We talk about church government, anything that that, uh, people might have questions about. We always have a bunch of new people coming through here. So uh, if they have any questions, they're free to ask. And so we did that last night. I think that's something that uh, all churches ought to do, and I, um, I just think that we are accountable to the people that provide the money, uh, so they can see how the money is being used. So that was our 
thing last night. Uh, before getting to the questions uh, tonight, we have our men's and women's um, and youth Bible studies here at 7 o'clock. Um, uh, Pastor Ken will be teaching the men. Uh, he's in the book of Acts. He gets to be in chapter 2 tonight, which, of course, is the day the church was born. Uh, his wife, May Cruzado, is going to be um, teaching the women. Um, I, I was so blessed by May yesterday. Um, you know, when people come forward at the end of a service, um, the people that go stand with them and pray with them, bring them in into my office um, for a little bit of privacy for prayer. And I walked in uh, yesterday uh, after one of the services, and May was talking to uh, one of the ladies who was in tears, and I just stepped in for a moment and then stepped out. Uh, but, boy, the, the counsel she was giving was so perfect, so loving, and so tender. And yet, you know, this relationship with God takes work. It's discipline. And, and uh, uh, man, I was really blessed. She's going to be the one teaching the ladies tonight. And, of course, we have our high school-age kids and our junior high school-age kids who will be meeting at the same time. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, the ladies' portion of it can be uh, viewed at calvarysa.com. And uh, we'd love to have you. It's always uh, better to be here in person because there's a Q&A afterwards. And, and um, um, I just think it gives a, a better opportunity to, to, to minister to uh, the people. So that's tonight here at 7 o'clock. Ladies, one more thing. Remember uh, that our women's retreat is coming up. It'll be starting a week from Thursday this week. One week, and our ladies' retreat will be starting. And Paula will talk more about that when she's here on the program on Thursday. Okay, let's get to some questions that have been sent in. And uh, then we will wait for some phone calls. Our first one comes from our email inbox. It's from Nacho. He said, since I assume God hid it, do you think the actual Ark of the Covenant will play any role in the Millennial Kingdom or in future events? Or since it was specifically Jewish in nature, did God get rid of it before or after Jesus' resurrection since it represented the age of the law and not the age of grace? That's a good question. Uh, I, I do actually think the Ark of the Covenant will be in the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, I, I think... Um, um, of course, Jesus will be ruling and reigning in the millennium. So, so all of the furnishings, the sacrifices, there will be sacrifices, animal sacrifices during the millennial kingdom. And all of those things will be done sort of as a memorial, uh, done in remembrance of, so that people in the, in the, uh, alive in the millennial kingdom will be able to um, look back at what God said, the picture that was drawn, and then see the reality in the person of Jesus Christ. So uh, I think the the actual ark will be there. Uh, I can promise you that Indiana Jones isn't going to find it, nor will anybody else. I promise you it's not hiding in Ethiopia. Um, uh, God knows where it is, and um, he'll find it. And, and I personally think it will be in the uh, millennial kingdom in the in the temple uh, there. Um, I, I don't think God got rid of it. I just think, like all things, God hides it. If if the Ark of the Covenant were found, uh, it would be um, 
the single greatest object of worship in the history of the world. Its value is inestimable. Um, but that's why God, just like he buried Moses' body, uh, that's why the Ark of the Covenant hasn't been found. Good question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one comes from Anton. Uh, he says, Pastor Ron, why didn't God allow Morin, uh, allow Aaron rather to mourn after his sons were killed in judgment for bringing strange fire to the altar in Leviticus chapter 10? Um, Anton, uh, a, a couple of things. Um, th- this had to be the hardest day of Aaron's life. Uh, two of his sons, his heir parents, were killed under the judgment of God. Uh, not only did he not have the whys, why did uh, uh, Adab, and I, uh, Adab and Abihu do that? Um, he, he wouldn't understand their motive. Um, I don't know that they understood their motive, but, but to see his sons judged by God and then being told by God that he couldn't mourn them, uh, to mourn would have implied uh, even the slightest that God was wrong in bringing this judgment upon Nadab and Abihu. Um, and, and for Aaron to mourn would have dishonored. Now here's something I think is important. and um, We who are in full-time service for the Lord um, and it shouldn't be just as it should be everybody. There's time when we've got to realize that we are a child of God, a subject of the kingdom, before we are a husband or a wife or a parent. And this was a time, um, you know, for, for um, Aaron's sons to offer strange fire after being told explicitly not to. Uh, this was a time for his father, for their father Aaron to step up as a man of God. And, you know, we've got the responsibility to agree with God um, in spite of how we're hurting. So it's very, very important. Um, Was Aaron's heart broken? Of course he was. Um, But he held his peace, uh, even though it was natural for him to question uh, why God would would, uh, do this. Um, But out of respect for God's holiness... Uh, Aaron forfeited his right to grieve and he was able to see uh, this wrong from God's standpoint and not from his own. So that's the idea. You know, there's times when, uh, and and I I deal with pastors all the time, so, um, you know, pastors' children will will mess up and the pastor has to represent God before he... um, responds as a parent. Um, We're always men of God. We're always representing God. We always are on duty. And so there's times when we've got to come out on his side and times when our heart is so broken, all we can do is rely on the justice of God. Now, Anton, you didn't ask this, but, um, you know, I think about this a lot because I know a lot of pastors whose kids are not saved. I have one, one son, he's a wonderful human being. He's a great, great man. Uh, but he's not saved. He needs Jesus. And I've wrestled with this in prayer. I pray for them every day, of course. And, and, and I've wrestled with this. You know, Lord, if they die and they don't know you, how, how could we deal with that? And the, the answer is we trust in the fairness, the love, the justice of God. We trust in the fact that that God has reached out to them time and time again. Certainly my son, 
uh, and his family, they know. We've told them. But we've also seen the evidence of God knocking on the door of their heart, and we can't just question God and God's love because somebody chose not to give their heart to Jesus Christ, no matter how much we love them. So Aaron had to be a man of God. He was the high priest. His job, first and foremost, is to represent God. And God said, no mourning permitted. This was willful sin. Their punishment was just. And an example had to be made. So that's what happened. Good question, Anton. Thank you very much. Here is a question from... Rich. Wow, this is a loaded one, Rich. He said, how can you explain faith to me? Um, Rich, um, Hebrews says um, what faith is. Um, We are, as Christians, we're to walk by faith, not by sight. And I think at its core level, faith is promise, believing in the promises of God, holding firm to the promise of God in spite of what we see. I was talking in our message yesterday about Christians who are still living their lives as though Jesus' body was in the tomb. We're in Luke chapter 24. And I think that's a lack of faith. I think that's the missing element. When we only do what makes sense or when we only do what we feel like doing, we live defeated lives. And the antidote to that is faith. Without faith, we're told it's impossible to please God. And when we're trying to walk without faith, when we're walking based on circumstances or what we can see, then we're not pleasing to God. Now, let me say this about faith, Rich. It's not just blind, stupid faith. Okay, I believe it. That's not what it is at all. Everything that we believe as Christians is true, it is reasonable, and is backed by overwhelming evidence. Now, at some point, you've got to combine the evidence with faith and believe. We're told that the Israelites in the Exodus wilderness perished in the wilderness. They didn't have to. They perished in the wilderness uh, because though they had the promises of God, they didn't combine those promises with faith. I think faith is that thing that we exercise that puts us in full partnership with God. And without faith in Him, it's not faith in faith, it's not faith in you, it's not faith in human nature, it's faith in God. And by that I mean, Rich, that we have to believe everything we said I have for a while now been quoting just a few of the promises in Romans chapter 8. If you want to see uh, the promises that are available to all of us, Romans 8 has some of the best. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, yet we walk around feeling condemned. If God is for me, who can be against me? Yet we walk around feeling like everything's against us. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And those are just a few of the promises from Romans chapter 8. And it requires faith to act on those promises. 
you know, Rich, if I make you a promise and you don't know me from Adam, you don't know if I can keep my promise. You don't know if I even know what I'm talking about. But when the promise comes from God, it's completely different. God who cannot lie. The promise is completely different. And I think walking in those promises is faith. I'm not talking just about faith to believe. We know that faith to believe is a gift from God. Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved and that through faith, not of yourselves, it, the faith, is a gift from God. So certainly it takes faith to believe in Him, but He gives us that faith. It's not something we have to do. All we have to do is look at the evidence. The message yesterday in large part was, hey, there's an empty tomb and that is the most compelling piece of evidence in the history of the world. Jesus said he would die. He did. He said he would raise from the dead. He did. And as we look at an empty tomb, there's evidence when combined with faith says, you know what? He's God. He said he would do it. He did it. He's alive. And then there's the faith to live every day. And that's more in line with the promises that I talked about just a couple of moments ago. So, Rich, faith isn't just uh, goosebumps. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Uh, Faith is something that we need to exercise every day to be pleasing to God. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from... Sam, a cynical question. Sam says, how can you take the Bible literally when science has already proven opposing theories? Sam, I would need you to be really specific because if you want to tell me that there's been science that has disproved anything the Bible said, I'm going to ask you to put up or shut up. The Bible has not been disproven ever. The theories, for instance, on creation... Big Bang, Darwinism, evolution. There's no substance to those theories. They're theories that begin by assuming there's no God. And anytime you discount God, well, then you've got to come up with an alternative for why we're all here and why we're so fearfully and wonderfully made. Why the sun rises in the same place every day and sets in the same place every day. Why January is always cold and and August is always hot. So Sam, I would suggest that until you take the Bible literally, you won't even be able to evaluate what science has supposedly proven. Does science validate God? I think not, Sam. We'll be praying for you. Anonymous says, I really struggle with the idea of having a relationship with God. How do you define relationship? Is it through the religious observances uh, that you employ or some other means? 
Um, um, and, and none of this isn't a hard question. Now, I, I say that, and I don't mean anything unkind by it, um, but um, uh, for some reason, and, and I think it's in part demonic, I think in part because our flesh is is um, so ugly, um, a relationship is exactly that. I'm married to a beautiful girl. Um, but what value would it be if I didn't talk to her, if she didn't talk to me? If our relationship was just sort of saying high occasion or passing as we go and do our own thing? Well, the same thing is true with Jesus. A relationship with God is a relationship that comes through Jesus Christ. It costs God everything to facilitate this relationship. Now, I, I think I can help you a little bit with this, Anonymous. Instead of thinking about a relationship with God, think about a relationship with Jesus. He's a real person on this earth, and even now he is in a flesh and blood, physical body, just like you and just like me. His body has scars now. Ours will not. He has suffered infinitely more than any of us have ever suffered. He's a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. His heart broke. He loved, expecting nothing in return. And he did all of that so that we could have a relationship with him. Now, here's what you need to do. You need to be with him every day. Talk to him all day, every day. Not just when you go to church, not just when you're saying a prayer, but talk to him. If you go to work, take him to work with you. Work will be better. Work, work will be richer and certainly more fulfilling. When you realize that he's your boss, then you can work for your earthly bosses unto the Lord. And when you do that, Anonymous, then um, you'll find yourself talking to him. You'll find yourself thinking about him. I actually talk to him out loud as I'm out walking around. Um, I, I want to, I call it practicing his presence, but, but I want to be with him in every way except physical. But I don't want to forget that he's here. I don't want to go two minutes without talking to him or thinking about him. I just think he loves me. He proved it. He saved me. Now I love him. And I want to keep the conversation going. And I am much poorer if I find myself involved with something and my mind sort of gets engrossed in that and, and, and I think, wow, it's been an hour and I haven't even spoken to the Lord. And I usually say, Lord, I'm sorry, I want, I want you to be involved in every minute of every day of my life. Now, we're going to keep practicing that. We're weak, our flesh is weak, and uh, our minds are going to wander. I understand that when my mind wanders... I just say, oh God, I don't want to think about that. I want to talk to you. And he's always right there. And that's what a relationship is. Now, when I said, don't think about God, think about Jesus. The reason I did that, Anonymous, is because Jesus was sent so that we could understand God. Jesus' mission was to reveal who God the Father was. Now, I can't envision God. God's not a human like Jesus. God's a spirit, we're told. Jesus said that. 
And I remember as a young Christian trying to think about God, and I'd get these pictures of this green mist out there in the spirit world somewhere, and, and nobody can relate to that. Relationship, relate. And then I thought, Jesus is the one whom my relationship is through. And so now I just imagine that I'm with Jesus every day, all day. And whatever I do, you're going you're gonna to behave differently, you're going to make different decisions, you're going to treat people differently if you're with Jesus. Philip, don't you know, after all this time, that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, Jesus said. And that just makes the relationship real. So that's what it is. There's nothing to do with religious observances, uh, nothing to do with going to church. You need to bring Jesus to church with you. Now, he's already here when you get here, of course. But but you need to be with him. Um, before I was a pastor, I used to imagine that, that Jesus is sitting right next to me in the church. And I wanted him to have access to my heart. Now, as a pastor, last thing I do before I go up is, Oh, Lord... I need your help. You love these people and I'm your servant. So let's do this according to your will. And Anonymous, that's what a relationship is all about. Relationships require work, effort, sacrifice, commitment, all those things. You hang out with Jesus and you'll understand relationship. Ray, sorry I didn't see you on the board. We'll get you on the other side of the break. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the show. We have 30 minutes left and we await your phone calls at 340-9585. Ray, please forgive me and um, you are on the air. Pastor Ron, you've already been forgiven, past, present, and future. <laughs> Thank you, Ray. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you realized that, sir. <laughs> anyway, uh, getting, getting back, to, I had to start writing down my question as best I could because a little older than you, I have trouble remembering <laughs> what my train of thought was, and I it left the station without me a few times. <laughs> so anyway, I was I was reflecting on the the body business, you know, and you're saying, well, we will have our re, re, uh, resurrected, perfect bodies, and Jesus will have his scars on his body, and we will know people, you know, when even if they get to the promised land, so to speak, 
in the smoking section, you know. It, it, it's all good. So anyway, I was thinking about Legion, you know, Satan, the 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 devils, you know, the the bad ones, and and uh, they they didn't like being without a body, and that's why when he, they were cast out of. Uh, and they, oh, please let us get into those swine. And that was okay. And they went over like lemmings into the, you know, and, and it was, uh, you know, a, a suicide thing. But, but what happens with, with, uh, you know, the likes of that sort of a thing? I mean, was, was that their escape or does the lake of fire necessitate, uh, a body to you know burn forever and ever you know like a a, a a candle you know that doesn't ever go out and and I don't know what else there was in that but I think that's probably more than more than enough to give you a chance to expound <laughs> on it. Thank you, Ray. If you I can do help that. me out on that. I can. Thank you, Ray. Ray's listened to too many of my Bible studies. He knows I can go an hour on almost anything. Um, we we don't know um, that, that angels will have a physical body um, when they're, the, the demons, the fallen angels, when they're cast into the lake of fire or not. We don't know just because we're not told. Um, and certainly... Um, there, there doesn't have to be a physical body for there to be torment. They're, they're conscious. Um, they, they know the goodness of God, the power of God, and yet chose to rebel uh, and to some degree have been suffering since being cast out of heaven. Um, so we don't really know for sure about that. You know, Ray, the, the whole situation with Legion, and, and he's going to be one of the really interesting people that we're going to be able to talk to when we get to heaven. Um, but but Jesus allowed the the demons. Now, what we know about demons now is that they um, are troubled by, they're made uncomfortable in some way that we can't understand by being disembodied. And so when they begged Jesus to cast him into the swine, it was to keep them from being uh, disembodied, just uh, spirits floating around uh, in the atmosphere. And Jesus let him do it. Now, it's always interesting. People say, well, why did he let him do it? Well, I think Jesus was giving an action sermon illustration there. Uh, remember, the huge crowd, they, they, they're they going to kick him out of town. He's making them really, really accountable because he's showing them, um, and, and those of us who've lived these 2,000 years or so afterwards, uh, what the Satan's intent for us is. As soon as those angels, or those fallen angels, went out and were, were, were allowed to go into the, the swine, they all committed pig suicide. They jumped off a cliff. Jesus said that the enemy is here to kill, to rob, to steal, and destroy. And he wanted them to see that. I'm here. I'm in your midst. I am the Son of God. I'm God the Son. And yet the, the spirits that you're following, they only want to destroy you. And he gave them that living sermon illustration and still their choice was to ask him to leave the region and by the way if you ask Jesus to leave he's going to leave you and they said you go we don't want you here he, he was messing with their their commerce their their pocketbooks 
And so um, that sermon illustration, right, I think was was um, really striking. Uh, and everybody would have thought, boy, this is serious. But But obviously most of the people thought, only briefly. Legion, of course, wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus said, no, you stay here. And then every time we see Jesus coming back into that area, there's huge crowds of people. Legion did his job, and did his job well. So, regarding the bodies that that uh, demon spirits are going to have um, in the Lake of Fire, we don't know, but what we do know is that they're going to be fully capable of being tormented. It's not I don't believe, personally, Ray, a literal fire. You know, like if we were to walk in a fire and be consumed, um, it, it, it'll be a fire like the burning bush, the bush that was on fire but not being consumed. And in that fire, they're going to be aware every minute for eternity of the agony they're in, of how it could have been spared, and of their willful choice to say no to the offer of God. It's a frightening thing. Frightening thing. Thank you, Ray. I appreciate it. Here is our next question. It comes from Diane. She says, will there be a second chance to accept Christ after we die? Diane, there will not be. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto man once to die and then face the judgment. So no second chances, no purgatory, no, uh, I want to reconsider. Um, you have to make the choice about where we're going to spend eternity. We have to make that choice while we're alive here on earth. So no second chances. Uh, I know there are religions that would make you think there is, that perhaps you can be prayed out of these places. You cannot. Once you die in this world, uh, your fate will be sealed. Diane, I've got a a great story that I've told over the years many times uh, to our church. Um, be- before I was a pastor, I was uh, in Bible college. We lived in a small apartment. Right across the apartment uh, from us was a, a, a man who was a manager of an Alpha Beta grocery store, a nighttime manager. Uh, he was a really, really good guy. Uh, we talked, and I was sharing with him, and he, yeah, he wasn't opposing Jesus, but he just, oh, I'm having kind of fun, and, uh, you know, I think maybe there'll be a second chance, and I I showed him there's not going to be any second chances. Well, one day, uh, he was a big news story in our our city. Again, I was up the mountain at Bible College, so I didn't hear about it until I came home on the weekend, and he'd been held up and held overnight. Um, um, uh, The robber had a shotgun, and he actually duct-taped the shotgun to the head of, of our friend. And finally, after all night, uh, the, the gunman gave up. And, and uh, so when I saw him, I said, I can't believe what happened to you. I said, you know, I've been telling you about Jesus for a long time. Did you ever think during that time what would happen if his finger slipped on that shotgun or if he shot you? And he said, Ron, I didn't think about anything else. I was so scared. I thought this was going to be it. And I said, if he shot you, you'd have spent forever in hell. And I assumed, I said, I assume you're ready to receive Jesus Christ. He said, no, I just can't get over thinking that there might be a second chance. 
die and there's no second chance. Not for him, not for you, not for your friends. You have to make the decision right here, right now, to whom you belong. Good question. Um, Jack said, I know the devil is real, but is he spirit or in a physical body? Jack, the devil is spirit. Um, Whatever an angel is, um, Lucifer was the most beautiful of all angels. Um, and um, it's why you don't see the devil physically. He is a spirit, but he sure makes his presence known. Uh, but he's not in the physical body. Now, we also know that angels can manifest themselves to look like they're, in, they're humans in physical bodies. Um, yesterday's Bible study, the two angels at the tomb of Jesus are, are, are described as two men in clothes that shine like gleaming white. Um, there were angels, but they looked like men. Um, we know that in Sodom and Gomorrah, the destroying angels looked like men because the, the wicked people in Sodom believed that they could have sex with them. So uh, they can appear to be physical, but they're spiritual. And they have powers that we can't begin to understand the, the, the devil in particular the most powerful of all of God's angels. He is the equivalent or the equal to Michael, the archangel, in terms of power and strength. That's why whenever you see uh, Israel in need of protection, God sends Michael to to combat against the devil. So good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Our next question comes from Amy. Uh, she says, how does God use our consciences in sanctifying us? Um, Amy, the conscience is a gift from God to all of us. Uh, and it's just sort of God's little nagging way of saying, you know this isn't right. You know this isn't right. Do the right thing. Don't do the wrong thing. I don't know how old you are, Amy, but when I grew up, there were cartoons. And whenever you were a, a struggle against doing right or wrong was portrayed it was like an angel would be on one shoulder and the devil would be on the other shoulder and they're duking it out to see who's going to influence the person well that's what God does with our consciences let me give you an example um, when I was in the process of, of coming very close to receiving Christ hey by the way I, I, I said this yesterday but didn't say anything on the program today yesterday was my 29th birthday in the Lord it was February 23rd, 1991, that uh, um, Jesus grabbed me and tackled me on a public street in Dublin, California, and uh, I surrendered my heart to him. So it was a good day yesterday for me. And uh, um, instantly, after getting saved, now when I got saved, my, my transformation was instant. I knew when I was doing wrong, and I knew that I had to do what, whatever I could find was right. I didn't know all the right stuff yet, but but I knew what was wrong, and I knew I couldn't do those things anymore. And uh, I was sort of flustered by, well, I've done this many times before. Why is it bothering me now? Well, that's how God used my conscience to draw me to him. Now, after we're saved, and you asked about the, 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 the doctrine of sanctification, Sanctification is being more like Jesus every day. It's just learning who he is and learning how to be more like him. Um, you know, Amy, when 
A Christian says something like, Pastor Ron, can a Christian drink? I got a couple questions. I don't know if I'll get to them today about marijuana. Can a Christian smoke marijuana? Well, by the time we have to ask that question, our conscience is already being attacked. God is already pricking our conscience, saying, you know the answer to that question. You know it's not okay to do it. And I tell people, usually, if you have to ask if it's okay if a Christian does this, or can a Christian do this and still be saved, the answer is no, and you know it's no. So he uses our consciences to get us to conform to his character. That's why the conscience is such a great tool, and we ignore it at our peril. Uh, Paul says to the church at Rome in Romans 14, verse 23, anything not of faith is sin. By that he means if you can't do something with a clear conscience, you know not to do it. And so that conscience is his tool for making us more and more like him. But remember, everybody has a conscience. It's one of God's gifts to men. We are made in his image. We have the ability to choose between right and wrong. And in this particular case, um, when an unbeliever chooses the wrong thing and their conscience says, well, I know that's wrong, that's the gift from God. Sort of like a governor. I remember Paul and I driving from um, Ontario, California to um, Mesa, Arizona, and we had this big U-Haul truck. And uh, I thought, well, that'll be good. And, and But it wouldn't go over 55. And we'd put the gas engine and be screaming, and, and yet it wouldn't go over 55. Well, I had a governor on it. Well, our conscience is sort of that governor that keeps us from stepping over a line that can't be uncrossed. You know, I look back on my life with Paula, Amy, and... Um, there were some things that I did or we did or wanted to do or could have done that I look back now and say, you know, if I'd have crossed that line, there was no coming back. As an unbeliever, that would have been over the edge for me. And it was God who kept me on the right side of that edge. And that was conscience. So that's how he uses our consciences. And he does it for believers and unbelievers alike. I like that question very much, Amy. Thank you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from William. He says, how does one overcome the burden of guilt when repenting and trying to get right with God? Um, William, I've been talking to some people about this very question. And evidently I'm not really good at explaining it because they're just not able to get it. So uh, let me try again. Um, We overcome the burden of guilt by faith. You know, for me, this makes all the sense in the world. And to some people, they just look at me like, what are you saying? And, um, you know, if God has already forgiven me, why would I feel guilty about it? I regret doing things, but I don't feel guilt. And the reason I don't feel guilt is because my guilt has been taken away. It's silly for an innocent person to feel guilty. And the faith comes into play, William, when we read what the Bible says 
and then make the choice to believe it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm in Christ Jesus, so there's no condemnation. And even for me, at the very beginning, again, yesterday was 29 years, even at the very beginning, I understood somehow, and I know this is a gift from God, but I understood that all the ugly things I'd done, and even those things that I messed up in after I was saved, remember, I was a brand new Christian, we don't know what to do, so we mess up. But when I messed up, I understood that all I had to do was say, God, I'm so sorry, I don't want to do that anymore. Now, it's not to get off the hook, it's just to say, Jesus, that's not who I am anymore. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? He didn't say, nobody, I'm stuck. He said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And it's never seemed effective to me to be trapped by guilt or carrying the burden of guilt when in reality that burden has been removed. And so I think, William, it's just faith in what God has accomplished on the cross for you. I think there's an element of pride. When we think, well, I gotta be I gotta feel really bad or I gotta gotta pay penance or something before I feel better about what I've done. You know, Jesus paid the price. And this is more important than I can communicate because if if you're feeling guilt when God says there's no need for it, the truth is you've chosen not to believe the promise of God. Now, I think most of the time it's because of the way we feel. But how we feel has nothing to do with what's fact. And again, even as a brand new believer, I got that. I don't really know why I got it, but I got it. And I've been trying to teach people that same thing for now 25 years. I think some people are so accustomed to responding to their emotions, their feelings. I'd rather respond to what I know is true of God and God has forgiven me all of my sins, past, present, and future. So why feel guilty? I feel bad. I I regret some of the things I do or say. But when I find myself in that position, I just purpose in my heart, Lord, I'm so sorry I don't want to do that again. And you know what? This power is available to make sure that we don't do those things. We don't need to sin anymore. And I think the enemy really, really tries to force guilt on us because he knows if he can, then we're going to keep doing the wrong things. So I think we have to be good receivers of gifts. You know, William, one of the characteristics of my whole life from a little kid is I'm one of the best gift receivers in the whole world. Jesus is better to give than receive. Well, I always have it the other way around. When people, I mean, even all my relatives love buying me presents because I went bananas for the presents. And because of that, I got more presents than most of the other kids. Certainly more than my brother or sister, because they'd open, oh, that's nice, thank you, and I'd just go ballistic. And so people love buying me stuff. Well, I am 
an eager receiver of God's gift of forgiveness. It means more to me than anything else. And if I carry around guilt that's been removed, then I stop becoming a good receiver of gifts. And the gift flow stops. So I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, 340-9585, maybe time to squeeze a call in if anybody's out there. But we got Brendan who says, did God really cause people to get sick and die because they abused communion in 1 Corinthians 11.30? Yeah, Brandon, he says it in his word. Because they were taking communion unworthily, uh, many of you have become sick and some have even died. Now, the, the question is, what is taking communion unworthily? Now, remember, Corinth was a wicked, wicked city, and the church in Corinth, right in the middle of that wickedness, was a very carnal church. That's why 1 Corinthians is written. It is a correction, a stinging rebuke. We know that there was rampant sin. We know that there were men and women who were involved in gross, gross, gross sexual immorality. And yet they could freely come to the table of God and participate in the elements like it was their birthright to do so. And what they were doing was mocking the grace of God. The earlier question that I had about conscience would indicate that these people were willfully doing what they knew was wrong. And they were doing it under the cover of, well, God's forgiven me, so it's okay, I can do it. And God isn't going to let people get away with that. Now, does he kill people, make people sick today? Who knows? I think he does. There's a sin that leads to death. That's what First John writes. I think some people have sinned to the point, real believers now, where the consequence is so severe that they lose their life. Um, I know some people who died pretty suddenly after having been involved in open and willful rebellion against God, I believe them to be real believers, and I think there's just a place where God says, okay, that's enough. Maybe to protect some of them from going too far, but but uh, I, I just know that's the case. And yeah, he is the cause of it. Now, is that the norm? Of course not. And is God patient? Yes, he was patient with the people in Corinth too, but... I think it should make us all, Brandon, take a really good, hard, serious look when we come into church and we see the elements sitting up front and as we prepare our hearts to pretend not to let the Spirit of God really dig deep into your heart. It's a dangerous thing to be. When we do communion, and this coming Sunday will be our communion Sunday because March, uh, Sunday's March 1st. Uh, my son's birthday. Um... We need to walk on holy ground. We need to be serious about being who we say we are. And I think sometimes people, we watch their lives sort of spin out of control because they're just not being serious with God. And I think that's a dangerous place to be. Thank you for the questions. Phones were pretty quiet, but... 
Thank you for tuning in. This has been the Word to Stand In for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.